This morning we will continue in Isaiah chapter 46. We had started that last week. Uh, we should finish Isaiah 46, and we should hopefully finish Isaiah 47 today. Okay? Need somebody to read Isaiah 46, 5 through 13 to get us started. Okay, Chase. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and lay out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god, then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, for Israel my glory. As I mentioned last week, the themes in this chapter are <clears throat> repeated from earlier themes in the book because the people seem to have spiritual amnesia. Now, of course, remember that they are in the land of Babylon. They are being mistreated, harassed. They have pretty much lost faith in the, that God cares for them. Or faith that even if he does, he's not willing to bring them back. They're having problems with idolatry. It seems like they're believing more in Babylon's so-called gods than they are in Yahweh. And so that brings us up to what Chase just read for us today. And I want to reread just a short passage from what I read at the end of last week from Portland before we get started. And uh, Henry, if you will look up for us 1 John 5, verse 20 and 21. That's the last two verses in 1 John. And I'll tell you when to read it. Alright, Portland, remember, he says about Babylon. He says, remember that Babylon is not just a culture of a bygone era. In the Bible, Babylon is a cipher of the whole of world culture outside of Christ. The Bible is showing us the essence of the world in our day and in all days until the end. And then he went on to say, we're influenced in ways we don't even notice. So we all, whether we notice it or not, have a problem with the world. We have a problem with idols. And it's kind of a little introduction. Let's hear what 1 John 5, 20 and 21 tells us. 
understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son Jesus Christ, who is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Jesus came to give us knowledge, and he is the true God and eternal life. And now this is in New Testament times. John ends his letter by saying, keep yourself from idols, or guard yourself from idols. Uh, ever since the beginning of the world, we've had problems with idols. And it, I believe the Bible teaches that we'll always have that problem. And so we've, we've had problems with idolatry now. And um, even if we think we're too sophisticated, <clears throat> like the um, film that Joshua showed us last Sunday night, um, we still have a problem with idolatry in this country. And we need to be careful <clears throat> unless we fall into the same thing. So Ortland hits the nail on the head. And of course, John, the Apostle John does too when the last thing he says in, in his first epistle, he says, guard yourself from idols. And E.J. Young, in his commentary on Isaiah, <coughs> says when man carries... Okay, remember, this started out with the gods of Baal and Nabo being talked about by Isaiah in Isaiah 46.1. They're carried about by carts in parades and things of that nature in the streets of Babylon. So man has to carry him in carts. And E.J. Young states, when man carries his God, the end is destruction. When the true God carries man... The end is salvation. So you serve gods in any way, idols in any way, this end is destruction. <clears throat> you serve Yahweh, the end is salvation. Alright, so in your notes it says again, we see a courtroom scene. Yahweh challenges the idol worshippers to compare their gods to Him. They are created by men's hands, and therefore they cannot save. Verses 6 and 7. He talks about the um, craftsmen making idols, and the very last phrase of verse 7, um, the last two phrases, though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. So their gods cannot deliver anyone. They cannot save themselves. They have to be towed about. If they go anywhere, man has to take them. And so why, O oh Israel, are you falling into idolatry? Why are you afraid of the Babylonians who worship Nabo and Baal? I am Yahweh. You don't need to fear them. Alright, as before, Yahweh calls on them to remember that He is the only God and He orders history. Um, Dana, will you look up for us Daniel 2, verses 10 through 11. Now these gods that they are observing in Babylon, they don't govern history. 
And their wise men, even at times, have acknowledged that. So let's look at uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the things which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Okay, so... They admit there's not a man on earth who can declare this matter. And they, they're magicians, they're conjurers. No Chaldean, no one could interpret this dream that he had had. No one can tell the future. They confess that. Their wise men have confessed that. And then they go on in verse 11 and says that uh, no one can do it except the gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Well, here they are. They tote their gods around on carts, and yet they say God, their dwelling place is not here. There's no need to consult them. They can't tell you anything. They don't, none, none of them know the future. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar, probably the only wise thing he ever did, had all of them executed. So uh, all the sorcerers and conjurers and all those type of people, he executed them. So at least he did one thing right. <clears throat> but um, the uh, here then they call upon Daniel, a person who faithfully serves Yahweh, and Daniel was able to tell the future without any problem at all, because he serves Yahweh. And Yahweh revealed it to him in a dream what it was going to happen in the rest of world history, that there would be four kingdoms. I mean, this is way past Nebuchadnezzar's time. Uh, and the four kingdoms, of course, would be uh, Nebuchadnezzar's. And then we see later in Daniel where the Medes and the Persians overtook them. And then later the Roman Empire would be the third one. And then, of course, the everlasting kingdom of Christ would be the, the fourth kingdom that he prophesied about. So God says, remember this. He says, the former things long past. I am God and there is no other. I am God. And there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times. Things which are not yet done. He is the true God. And He not only declares the future. He says, I declare the end from the beginning. He says, my purpose will be established. My plans will be established. He says, things happen not only because I foresee them, but I declare them. I have an eternal decree and I know exactly what is going to happen in the future. And then in verses 12 and 13, all right, after it, all right, the blank there in the uh, previous one, is He orders history. God orders history. He not only shows the future, but He orders it. He has an eternal decree. Then in verses 12 and 13, He reminds those who won't listen to Him of their true status. They are stubborn-hearted, stubborn-hearted, 
another good word for stiff-necked. And their true status is that they are unrighteous and that they have missed the only way of salvation. So that's your true condition, O Babylonians, and any that trust in their gods. They're stubborn-hearted, they're unrighteous, and they have missed the only way of salvation. He says in verse 13, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. So their gods are worthless, and they have even admitted so, or they will admit so during the time of Daniel. And uh, they cannot sleep. So what are you worried about, O Israel? Alright, that's all I have to say on chapter 46. Anybody have anything to add to that? Or have I covered every single possible thing? <laughs> Alright, we'll need somebody to hand out chapter 47 for me. It's two pages. Henry, you want to do that? Chase? One of you can do one and one the other. And while they're handing out, um, Jill, I will have you read 47. Let's see what I want to have you read through. Just read the first eight verses of chapter 47. And then I will have uh, some other reading assignments too right after you get through with that. Go ahead and read that for us. Come, excuse me, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove the veil, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not arbitrate with a man. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly you laid your yoke very heavily, and you said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. Okay. All right, in your notes there, this chapter concerns the destruction of Babylon. And Mike, if you'll look up for us, Daniel 4, 28-33. Bud, Isaiah 14, 3 and 4. And then Kim, Revelation 18. 
1 and 2, 21 and 24. All right, so we're talking about now <coughs> the destruction of Babylon. <coughs> Derek Kidner's observation on this, he states that this chapter is a dirge or a taunt song in the characteristic fall-away rhythm of such poems. So here we have what may be a, amount to the, a dirge for Babylon. And this is not the only place in Scripture where we have a dirge for Babylon. Okay, uh, let's set the contact text here. Uh, Daniel four twenty-eight through thirty-three. All this happened in Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, "Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty?" While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Okay, um, we, I meant to make this statement before we read that, but Babylon was very wicked. That's in your notes. One aspect of this wickedness was her pride. And we see Nebuchadnezzar's pride here when he's taking a walk through his house and says, look what I've built. And immediately, uh, he was turned into an animal. God is saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you didn't build this. I gave it to you. Okay, so we see the pride of Babylon, the pride of one of its leaders there. And interestingly, in verse 33, this really has nothing to do with um, the theme here, but where it says his body was drenched. Anybody have any other translation that says for his body was drenched? With the dew of heaven. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word wrench there is baptize. Baptize. So that means he was immersed with the dew of heaven, right? That's because it didn't drown. What? Didn't drown, did No. So evidently the uh, people that translated the Septuagint knew that baptizo does not have to be a mercy. Alright, so we see that one aspect of, 
they were very wicked, but one of the aspects was their pride, and we see here the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, let's all turn to Isaiah 14, 3 and 4. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this talk against the king of Babylon. Okay. And then 12 through 15 also, bud, on that. 12? 12 through 15, yeah. How you are fallen from heaven, from the day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Alright, so here we see another instance of Babylon, the king of Babylon, <clears throat> being very proud, and he's going to be brought down to Sheol. Now, in 14.3, uh, it says, It will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain, etc., etc. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So we're talking about the king of Babylon here. And Joshua. I will ask you again to read verse, let's see, verses 13, no, verse 12. What? Uh, that would be Isaiah 14, 12. Now, in the version that Bud read, it says something like this, How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, or O day star of the morning? Isaiah 14, 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the earth, which didst weaken the nations? All right, in the King James and New King James, instead of star, or day star, the King James translators translated that as Lucifer. And then we saw in verse 3 and 4 that this is a prophecy against the king of Babylon. Lucifer is not the devil. Lucifer was the uh, word for the king of Babylon. So they just interpreted it that way. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly why they say Lucifer. But it's literally not Lucifer. And if it is, it's Lucifer is not the devil. Lucifer obviously is the king of Babylon here. So here we have the king of Babylon. God has prophesied through Isaiah earlier, chapter 14, that he is going to be brought down. Let's turn to Revelation 18. By the way, that's the only place where the word Lucifer appears, to my knowledge, in any translation. Revelation 
Okay, Revelation 18. Somewhere so in here. So that, that word is really Latin. Lucifer. I, I like, so. like I said, I don't know why they translated it as Lucifer. It's, um, nowhere, it's nowhere in Scripture. No. Lucifer. No. That's interesting also because you've got this whole Luciferian ideology that Satanists embrace, but if that's just referring to the king of Babylon, that kind of sheds new insight maybe onto I don't think they're ignorant. I don't think Satanists are ignorant as to what they're really doing, what they're worshiping. So, um, I don't know. It's just interesting, I guess. Yeah. Well, that was like a snowball rolling down the hill. I mean, there's all kinds of references to Lucifer in literature, movies, and all Yeah. Stuff. And there's even good, solid, reformed theologians that call them Lucifer. You read it every now and then. Maybe they know more than I do. I don't know, but I can't see from the Bible where Lucifer is a devil. I just don't see any hint of that. Let me read the footnote here in the Geneva Bible. Okay. Thou that thoughtest thyself most glorious, and as it were placed in the heaven, for the morning star that goeth before the sun is called Lucifer, to whom Nebuchadnezzar was compared. Okay, that's that's the note in it, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. So I've noted this study of Bible has got literally the shining one, the sun of dawn, probably that refers to the planet Venus mm-hmm. rising in the morning and climbing toward the top of the sky, only to be overtaken by the sun. In the ancient world, observation of this astronomical cycle gave rise to several myths. Babylon seems to have thought of itself as fulfilling such a heavenly destiny and becoming an eternal and universal empire that the appearance of God, verse 22, Babylon's life would be extinguished. Nothing about Lucifer. Okay, that's good. All right, Revelation 18, 1 and 2. And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, so that the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried out mightily with a loud voice, saying, It is fallen, it is fallen, Babylon, that great city, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of all foul spirits, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Alright, this is mighty late in Scripture to be talking about the city of Babylon. Uh, so I agree with Ortland that Babylon is just kind of a symbol of wicked nations of the world, so to speak. And here we have, it sounds kind of like Isaiah 14, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison for every unclean spirit. And of course, John here is referring to that modern day Babylon of Jerusalem, I believe. Because later I think it says where the Lord was crucified. And then if we go on to verse 21 of the same chapter, you'll read that for us, Kim. 
Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and cast it into the sea, saying, With such violence shall that great city Babylon be cast, and shall be found no more. All right. The American Standard says, Thrown down with violence. So it'll be, she will be brought down, just like in Isaiah 14. And then in verse um, 24. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. So Babylon is the persecutor of the people of God. Very wicked, and they are the persecutors of God's people. Any other comments on that verse? Okay, now, in verses 1 through 3, Isaiah prophesies that Babylon will be humiliated. Her skirt's going to be lifted up and, they're going to, and she's going to be naked and all these kind of things. And her true nature will be exposed how wicked she is. And God will take vengeance on her. And instead of sitting on a throne, she's going to be sitting on the ground, sitting on the dust. No throne to sit on. And this shows the true state of those who are living without Yahweh, who have no regard for the true God this is true for them. They have no protection. They have no protection from God's vengeance. They are naked. They will appear before God naked. Of course, those that are in Christ, those that believe in Yahweh, the true God, um, they're, they're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So you're either clothed with the righteousness of Christ when you stand before God on Judgment Day, or you're naked. And then in verse 4, we read, um, Isaiah says that our Redeemer, Yahweh Sabaoth is His name. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh Sabaoth. Is his name. The Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel. So, in your notes there, Israel, however, will be redeemed by Yahweh their God. Alright, and then continuing in your notes, it appears in verses 5 through 8 that Babylon thought they were immune from ever being judged. But they will be. That's typical of unbelievers, right? Well, if you make your own idols, and the idols are nothing, then you get to set the rules. So, are you going to judge yourself? <laughs> That's right. But the typical non-Christian, if he believes in, in a God at all, he'll think he's just good enough to get in. He sets the bar right below. Uh, he says... You know, I'm a good enough person. God's going to save me. But man, those people that aren't as good as me will be unto them. So, it's typical of those who are outside of Christ who do not understand the holiness of God and that Yahweh is the only true God that they believe they are in one way or another immune from God's judgment. 
Like all unbelieving people in your notes, they deceive themselves in this matter. All non-Christians are deceived people. When you're in a room full of people, all of those that are non-Christians are deceived people. <clears throat> Alanda, will you look up for us Daniel 5.30? In your notes there, I'll tell you when to read. However, swift judgment will come upon them. They're deceived, but swift judgment will come upon them. And we see that happens to the king of Babylon, who is Belshazzar, I believe, at this time. Uh, as they were partying and blaspheming God by eating out of the holy utensils and things of this sort. Let's see what happens in Daniel 5.30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. That very night, that very hour, swift judgment came upon them. <clears throat> and then two other things to note in these verses. In verse 6, Babylon has shown no mercy. He did not show mercy to them. And the so Babylon will receive no mercy. Babylon showed no mercy. Babylon received no mercy, which is exactly what the people of God prayed for in Psalm 137. And then also in verse 8, as is also in verse 10, which we hadn't got to yet, they had become so proud that uh, they thought they were even self-existent. It says, I am and there is no one beside me in verse 8. And then in verse 10, you said in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. They don't need a God. They're self-existent. They've created themselves, so to speak. They are the Creator. Only God is self-existent. Either somebody causes you to exist or your self-existence. And they're saying that, that um, they are and there is none beside me. And that reminds you of God revealing Himself to Moses. I am who I am. He is saying there, I am the self-existent God. I am dependent on nothing. Our God is dependent on nothing. He is, and there is no other. Okay, that's as far as we're going to get today. Anybody have anything to add to what we've, what we've said or read? If not, Joshua, I'll ask you to close us in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. It's time of uh, fellowship.